Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Eva Glesic, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mark Ederle about his book, Debates on Stalinism. Now, Mark is the Hansen Chair in History at the University of Melbourne, specializing in the history of the Soviet Union and its successor states, in particular Russia. His recent publications include Stalinism at War, the Soviet Union in the World War II, uh, the politics of veteran benefits in the 20th century, and this is a comparative history written with Martin Crotty and Neil Diamond, and the Soviet Union, a short history. Mark has written extensively on Stalinist society, the Second World War, and Soviet veterans. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Eva. Uh, Mark, I wonder if uh, you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, Well, I'm a historian of the Soviet Union, as you said. I've been trained uh, in Germany originally, uh, my undergraduate degree, and then at the University of Chicago uh, for my PhD. And I came to Australia uh, after, you know, an extensive job search for jobs, which uh, there were none. Um, in 2004, I managed to uh, get a, uh, an ongoing position at the University of Western Australia, uh, where I stayed until 2017, uh, when I moved to my current position at the University of Melbourne. Um, that's fantastic, Mark. And I, as I said, you've written really extensively on this period of Stalinism. Um, and in um, you focus on in your work on debates on Stalinism, um, kind of on the historiography of this period. And you open with this observation that there are essentially three major areas of debate in the historiography of the Soviet Union. So there's the revolution of 1917 and the origins of the Soviet Union, um, the years of Stalinist brutal regime from the late 1920s to his death in 1953, um, and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Now, noting that your work has largely focused on the Stalin era, I was wondering if you could tell us how you became interested in the historiography of Stalinism, and in particular, the way in which historians in the Anglophone world have engaged with this topic since the mid-1980s, which is where where your book begins. Yes, so um, I guess that that story probably begins... um, at the University of Chicago in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, And so at Chicago, which at the time was uh, probably the biggest program for Soviet history outside of the former Soviet uh, space. Um, So there was quite a few of us trying to, you know, working on, on, on related topics and trying to figure out how to make sense of the kind of archival data we were digging up. And like many others, I was exposed there to the kind of uh, what I see as sort of the mythological history uh, of my field, which is that there is, you know, that there used to be the dark uh, days of the totalitarian model, uh, which was uh, 
uh, driven by by Cold War ideology uh, and completely misrepresented uh, Soviet society. Uh, then came uh, the revisionists uh, who you know enlightened us about the existence of society under Stalin. Uh, and then uh, came the post-revisionists who reminded everybody or or came up with this notion that ideology was really uh, important. Um, so that was kind of the the, the story um, as it was sort of told, I guess, to to graduate students at the time. Um, but then some of us read stuff from the 50s and the 60s, and some of us quite liked some of the things we read from the 50s and 60s. And we thought this was all very strange. So we, we formed a little um, a little study circle, a kruzhok, um, and read relatively systematically uh, literature from the 50s and 60s, uh, particularly scholars connected to the Harvard Interview Project, uh, but also others. And uh, that sort of started conversations about how this, this story was somehow not right, the story we were told by uh, our um, teachers. And so that, that led me to write an essay, uh, a first essay on this, which came out in 2007 uh, with the journal Kritika. Um, and then I was asked after I took up my position uh, in, uh, in, uh, at UWA in Perth, uh, Western Australia, uh, by Oxford University Press uh, if I wouldn't want to write uh, something for a new series they had, um, which became the my 2011 book, Stalinist Society. And the series was meant to have a final chapter so that the, the book itself was meant to be a, uh, a synthetic account of, uh, of Stalinism, um, in my case, from a decidedly kind of social history perspective. But then there was supposed to be a, a final chapter on historiography. And I was very strongly encouraged to not make this too dry uh, and to not and make this analytical, not just descriptive, not saying, you know, then this happened then that person published this and so on. And to contextualize the debates and why they were so, and, and, you know, think about the politics of them and so on. So I then wrote something which I quite enjoyed writing, although uh, as a colleague at the time who read it said to me, nobody's going to talk to you ever again. Um, and it did become quite controversial and it annoyed a lot of people. Uh, and it probably didn't help the reception of the book, I think, because uh, there was a lot of focus on that controversial chapter. But that then led to the invitation to create uh, a proposal for uh, for what became debates on Stalinism, which is in a way an expansion of that uh, of that of that one chapter um, in many ways. So that's kind of the story behind that. So I was uh, basically approached to to write a, a, a more a more detailed uh, investigation of kind of the politics really of, of my field. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly um, interesting that you know that um, this book emerged out of a controversy. Um, and it seems that the entire debate on Stalinism is really history of these historical controversies that you, you raise. Um, the first part of your book really focuses on life and work of three historians, um, Sheila Fitzpatrick, Moshe Levine and Richard Pipes. Um, they are kind of the main part of, of 
this um, opening section. So I was wondering if you uh, tell us, can tell us about how you decided to focus on these three scholars and also tell us a little bit about the path into the field of Soviet history um, that they had and, and um, how they shaped the study of Stalinism. Yeah, so one, one of the things, and that might be partially, you know, the, the perspective of somebody who is, you know, was born and raised in Germany, got interested in uh, in Russia and then the Soviet Union, uh, and then was trained in the United States and ended up in Australia. I was interested in in displacement, how displacements um, of people, but also their their experiences, right, as scholars and as as human beings, uh, shape particular U.S. scholarship, which is very often which has a lot of that, right? There's a lot of people coming to the U.S. Uh, uh, who, who come from elsewhere and bring with them all kinds of personal and ideological and historical baggage. So I was kind of interested in the, in the role of this, this kind of displacement and this kind of transnational history of, of my field in, in, in U.S. scholarship in particular. Um, and uh, so I, I picked scholars who I both you know, thought were very influential for various reasons, uh, but also who were uh, examples of this kind of displacement. So Moshe Levin and Richard Pipes are both Polish Jews. Um, they're not exactly the same age, but roughly of the same generation. They're from the opposite end of the political spectrum. All right, Levin uh, was a kind of uh, Marxist Zionist uh, and uh, Pipes uh, was quite uh, from the conservative end of the spectrum. They both leave because of of World War II and the Nazis. Uh, Pipes leaves uh, it leaves in 1939 after the the German invasion uh, in a in a kind of very adventurous story through Germany actually um, uh, under assumed identity and so on. Uh, Levine uh, leaves um, in 41 uh, after the the Germans attack. Uh, the Soviets, and he leaves from the Baltics, uh, jumping on a on a Red Army truck uh, and going uh, into the Soviet Union. So now, eventually, after some adventures, you know, Levine eventually leaves to leaves the Soviet Union after the war, uh, goes back to Poland, but not very long. Then is in Paris, then goes to Israel, uh, and spends goes back to Paris, uh, gets a PhD. Uh, is in the UK for a while and then ends up also in the United States. But he becomes the kind of grandfather in, in some ways of, or maybe the father, I don't know, um, of what becomes the revisionist school, right? So he he's quite uh, on the left. Um, he uh, spends a lot of his uh, work uh, basically trying to figure out how you get from Leninism, which he basically thought was a good thing, to Stalinism, which he thought was terrible and an aberration, um, and he was very influential on on the on the on the left uh, of academia in the in the U.S. Uh, for that reason, a, uh, a very a very good essayist. His essays are are some of his most influential thing writings were were essays. Um, less so a kind of book writer, although he wrote some books as well. Uh, Pipes was quite different. Pipes is very conservative. He becomes, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the um, 
the proponents of the totalitarian model. Uh, he serves in the in the uh, Reagan administration. He is often um, often uh, people often claim that he invented the idea uh, or the phrase the Soviet Union as the empire of evil. Uh, when he was asked about this in Russia after the uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, he said, "No, unfortunately, no. Uh, wasn't my I would have liked it, but I wasn't." He barely wrote any essays. There are some, but mostly what he writes are books, but not kind of monographs, which are trying to figure out some uh, some very focused uh, problem with a with a very specific source base. But they're all kind of big histories of, you know, the formation of the Soviet Union, uh, Bolshevism, um, Russia uh, under the old regime, and so on. So he wrote kind of big. Uh, big books, and he, while Levine was extremely successful within academia uh, and and influential within academia, Pipes always felt a bit estranged from academia. Although you know, the chair at Harvard, so it's so bad. Um, but he uh, he was very successful in as a public intellectual, and then uh, eventually as a political advisor. So. Um, so in many ways, they they were sort of. Uh, I was I was really originally I wanted to write one chapter which is about both of them, uh, le- one leaving west, the other leaving east, one becoming a revisionist, the other totalitarian. Uh, but it didn't. It was too much for one chapter. Um, so that's those two, and they they're just extremely influential characters, and I think. Uh, examples for bringing bringing politics from Eastern Europe with them uh, to the United States uh, and to their scholarship. Um, Fitzpatrick, who who trained me at at the University of Chicago, is quite different. Uh, she is from Melbourne uh, in Australia, uh, from kind of the the Bohemian Melbourne left. Her father was a very influential. Uh, public intellectual, uh, human rights advocate, and um, or civil rights advocate, I guess, uh, and uh, journalist, um, and a, a, an important historian of um, of uh, of Australia, but outside of the academic establishment. So he he always sort of lived on the on the sidelines, um, and she brought her rebe- and she was. An important thing about, I think, Fitzpatrick's approach to history is she was trained in the department at the University of Melbourne, where I uh, occupy a chair now as well, which was very strongly uh, focused on working with primary sources. So her whole habitus as a historian was was formed by the sense that what historians do is they go always back to the primary sources, always back to primary sources. And that's something she brought with her as she did her rebellion against her kind of fellow traveler father. Um, but then she also had a secondary uh, socialization in uh, in uh, Moscow uh, with um, not dissident, but, uh, you know, sidelined um, communist intellectuals um, in, in Moscow. And, and, and this kind of complex history she brought with her uh, to uh, the United States, where she really 
was one of the important drivers of a of a professionalization of the history of the Soviet Union, uh, very much against that generation of Levine and Pipes who were much more who, who were much less interested in in methodology um, than would be Fitzpatrick, but also her peers uh, around her. Um, and she would become kind of the revisionist, uh, although she would write against both the revisionists, like the, the, the Marxist revisionists in, in particular, as well as the totalitarians. And she was a very strong school builder and trainer of, uh, of a new generation of uh, professional historians of the Soviet Union, of which I am one of them. So that, that I was interested in those those kind of stories of how displaced experiences then lead also to to terrible misunderstandings of each other. I think when they uh, when they kind of clash in, um, and and those three kind of clashed in many ways among many others in in the U.S. context. Yes, and they're indeed a source of many controversies that, um, as I said, frame your your book. Um, I was very surprised to read uh, the difference between the training that um, Sheila Fitzpatrick had in Melbourne and then when she uh, continued her studies in Oxford, which definitely did not have uh, the same focus on primary sources. Or on on training, anybody. Or on training, that's right. It was uh, quite a surprising kind of insight into into that training. Um, I was wondering, before we move on to my next um, question, if you could tell us a little bit about the sources that you used um, to write about these three historians. Well, I, uh, well, I read their work in the first instance, right? And then, but then I also read their archives. So um, Fitzpatrick has her papers at the University of Chicago. Um, Richard Pipes has his uh, his papers at uh, Harvard, and um, and uh, Levine has his papers at uh, University of Pennsylvania. Um, and yeah, so I read their their and and this is pre mostly pre computer, right? So uh, their um, their correspondence they often kept copies or they kept at least one side of the correspondence you would you would get so there was quite a bit uh with levine i mean there was he had some very strong correspondence with some people but he also clearly was a, a, a somebody who often picked up the phone so he would spend a lot of time talking to people on the phone which is of course slightly annoying for the historian because you don't have an archive there but then sometimes he would get letters from people referring to a phone conversation they had so so that was um, interesting, um, and maybe I mean one footnote on the on on um, uh, Pipes's papers, uh, which require basically permission from his son Dan- Daniel, um, and although he and not not only did he get me permission to work with them, but uh, the archive then also required. Uh, me to basically get permission for every single quotation I used from uh, Pipes. Uh, and so I sent him the chapter uh, and he basically said, he just signed off on it saying, of course you can use it. Um, and so despite knowing that I was not, you know, a 
hagiographer of his father, uh, he was very um, professional about this, which I thought was, uh, I was very grateful for that. Yeah, it's, it's always tricky working with uh, personal papers and, and dealing with families in that process as well. Um, now, um, Stalin is obviously the heart of Stalinism. Um, and in your book, you also discuss uh, quite a bit of uh, biographical writing on, on Stalin. Um, can you tell us how historians approach this genre in the past? Yes. So, I mean, a lot of... Uh, that was actually one of the kind of uh, real revelations for myself when I, I wrote it because I thought, well, surely I need to write a chapter on Stalin biographies. Uh, and I had, of course, read, you know, many of them, but never very systematically. But reading them systematically kind of showed to me how important that genre was to for developing the field and developing a lot of the background knowledge which other historians then used. Um, and so the... The, the, the general story uh, can be uh, maybe told in sort of in, in, in chunks of in intellectual paradigms. The first were the Marxists. So these were non-Stalinist and very often anti-Stalinist Marxists uh, who uh, wrote still during the time uh, Stalin was alive. So the first of them is Boris Souverine, uh, who uh, published a very anti-Stalinist account in 35. Leon Trotsky, of course, who uh, was killed over his um, a very angry book on Stalin uh, in 1940. Uh, reportedly, his blood splattered over the manuscript. So that's quite dramatic. Um, and then, of course, also Isaac Deutscher, uh, a book from 1949, second edition, 67. And so these were Marxists who tried to figure out how to explain the phenomenon Stalin in Marxist ways. Uh, so uh, the, the, the general outline or the general approach for that is to, to try to find a way to uh, account for Stalin as the expression of underlying social forces, right? Um, so the you know there's the base, the social forces, and somehow Stalin, if Stalin is part of the superstructure, has to be determined by the base, right? And and very often the the answer to that is the uh, the a new class structure emerging in the Soviet Union um, after uh, the revolution, um, and Stalin as the expression of this kind of um, uh, this kind of uh, new, new ruling class. Um, in the process, they did a lot of really good work, both on Stalin's career, but also on the wider social history um, of uh, the Soviet Union. So these are actually very influential accounts, and a lot of later historians learned a lot from them, and then often forgot where they learned it from. Um, uh, so that was that was so that's the first bunch is sort of Marxists, and then you have. Um, at the same time, more, more psychological approaches. On the one hand, coming again more from the left, a psychoanalytical approach, basically seeing Stalin as sort of the neurotic in the Kremlin, uh, bringing psychoanalysis to, to uh, trying to understand this. So this is, this is Tucker uh, in a two-volume uh, book, on uh, two volumes on Stalin, 73 and 1990. Uh, and the other one is Adam Ulam, 
who was not influenced by or not overtly influenced by psychoanalysis, uh, but was very interested in ideology. Uh, so he saw Stalin as a typical Bolshevik uh, and driven by ideology. So he was very much in the kind of totalitarian framework. But again, both Tucker and Ulam wrote uh, really, really useful books in many ways. Uh, however, you want to, you know, whether or not you you uh, uh, agree with their their theoretical background, um, and they build, of course, on the earlier Marxist uh, approaches, even where they argued with them. Um, and then you get a whole bunch of uh, accounts which are driven by new new evidence coming out of the archives. So the first of that one comes out of then still the Soviet Union, Dmitry Volkogonov, um, which was a, a Leninist critique of Stalin, but he was already able, because of his position uh, within the, the Soviet uh, power structure, to see archival documents on Stalin. So he's the first one uh, working with, um, with uh, archival materials on Stalin. Uh, then there is, uh, when the archives open in the, in, after breakdown of the Soviet Union, um, biography is not very fashionable among historians. I think it's something which, which uh, um, amateurs do. Uh, real historians do, you know, social history or do uh, cultural history or, or something like that, but not biography. So we then get a few freelancers who uh, are uh, working with these archives. Edward Rajinsky, 1997, uh, Simon Montefiore in 2003 and 2007, uh, who work with new archival data, but also they're, they're writing for, not for academics, but for a broad audience. Uh, and of course, because they're freelancers, they really need to sell books. So what do you do when you sell, want to sell books? Well, sex and sex and violence, right? So there's a lot on on, on the sex life of, of Stalin and the Bolsheviks in, in these books. And then professional historians get interested again uh, in, in this. And so you get a new, um, in, in, because of the new, all this new evidence that's out there with the open archives. So you get a, uh, kind of a, a new group of professional historians, academic historians who write uh, political biography, uh, but with the new archival data from post-91. They're all anti-revisionist or post-revisionist in, um, in their kind of approach. This includes Robert Service, uh, very good biography from 2005. Jörg Barbarowski, German scholar from uh, 2012, now also available in English translation. And then the, as of now, two-volume um, Magnus Opus by uh, Stephen Kotkin uh, of 2014 and 17. And we're waiting uh, for volume the, the third, yeah, the third. But apparently that might take a little longer because it has to deal with World War II and the post-war Stalinist years, which is quite a bit to chew on. And, and there's Sunni's uh, biography as well, which is also quite quite hefty. Um, this is I, I wanted to um, really seek your opinion on the ongoing popularity, really, of these of this of this genre. I mean, you you conclude your book with Oleg Klevnuk's um, exceptional study, Stalin: A New Biography of a Dictator. This was published in 2015, and it's terrific history, but also just a page turner. Um, 
And since then, we've seen, as you just noted, a number of these kind of hefty biographies on Joseph Stalin uh, being published by professional historians. Um, and so it's interesting if you uh, might have some thoughts on, on why this genre continues to be such a popular um, yeah, field among historians. Well, it's one of the things I think you can do if you want to actually sell books um, is write a biography because there is a there is a public interest in you know the life of great or not so great men, um, and increasingly you know great women too. But uh, they so they if you want to actually talk to a broader public, that's that's one way to do it. That was Isaac Deutscher's story. He he wanted to really write a social history of. Stalinism. That's what he wanted to write. Um, but when he but he also had to make a living, right? He was an exile uh, living in the UK. So he approached uh, a publisher and pitched that book, and they said, "Nah, that nobody's going to read that." But what about a, a biography of Stalin? People want to read that. And so he basically used the biography of Stalin to write that social history of Stalinism he wanted to write. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons why this is attractive, and as academic historians are have started to think more about also talking to a broader public um, and are kind of encouraged by the institutions to do so. I think that's one, uh, one reason for that to happen. Um, it's, of course, also the guy is interesting, right? I mean, Stalin, this is not boring. Um, so it's, it's an, you know, there's an interesting story to be uh, told. Um, and as of the, the, the latest uh, kind of big, uh, big wave of Stalin biographies, that was very much driven by this whole new source base, right? You see that with the others too. You have the, the early, this early Marxist wave. They basically scooped up all of the sources that were available at the time to make sense of uh, Stalin. And then there is, for a very long time, not very much happens until you get new material released under Khrushchev and the and the thaw, um, and there's now suddenly more more material, new material to work with. So you get this new wave of of Stalin biographies, uh, Taka Ulam and and others. Then again, there's kind of a, a lull because there's no new material. There's not very much you can do, and then you get this massive outpouring of material from uh, from the archives. Um, and I think we're probably at the end of that wave, right? I think the, the publications we've seen probably have worked their way through this material. And, you know, we're recording this uh, in the, where are we now, second week of uh, the war in uh, Ukraine. Uh, I'm not very optimistic that and a lot of new material will come out of Russia anytime soon, or in, indeed, quite possibly uh, Ukraine. Uh, so I think there's that there's there's that as well. There is, you know, the availability of material and 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 the, and working your way through that. And once that has happened, you know, it, there's no longer a need to write on this, and people will shift to other. Yes, indeed. And I mean, that importance of sources and, and access to sources is really also part of your story in, in debates on Stalinism. Um, and I was wondering if we could go back to these questions of question of totalitarianism and revisionism. And you um, 
focus on these two major intellectual frameworks um, that have shaped the study of Stalinism during the Cold War era and track their evolution throughout the book. Um, I was wondering if you can provide a quick overview, you know, for someone who doesn't quite know what totalitarianism and revisionism might be, um, but also how have these approaches changed um, following the collapse of the of the Soviet mm. Union? Yeah. Well, in many ways, I, the, the book is in, in many ways a polemic with this, with this narrative, I was presented as a graduate student that there's kind of a, uh, a, a nearly Hegelian story of, of progress from darkness to light, from the darkness of totalitarianism through revisionism to post-revisionism uh, and the history, the history writing getting better all the time as a result, which is actually, I don't believe there's too much evidence uh, for that. Not that there's not an evolution of our understanding, uh, but that there's, you know, that it gets better all the time is, is not entirely evident to me. But the, the, in, in the 50s and 60s, the, in the West and in particular in the US, the notion that uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin, and then there's a discussion about whether or not that was also true before or after, but let's just talk about Stalin, was totalitarian. That meant it was a one-person dictatorship with extremely strong economic, police, and ideological controls, which tried to completely reconstruct society um, uh, on the basis of this ideology. Um, so there was quite a bit of focus on top-down and on uh, the dictatorship driving things, right? Um, this also had very strong political implications because totalitarianism also referred to Nazi Germany. So it basically said the proper comparison of the Soviet Union is with Nazi Germany. Uh, you know what happened when you tried to negotiate with Nazi Germany, appeasement, you get world war and so on. The only way to deal with totalitarianism is by confrontation. Uh, so it had that kind of Cold War implication. And that was a lot of what uh, younger scholars, but also scholars of a generation which otherwise embraced totalitarianism. So Moshe Levine, for example, who would be of the kind of totalitarian generation, but uh, was not one. Uh, but actually actively wrote against that, um, partially because of the political implications. And then the other thing which happened with the, with the revisionists was uh, that this was a, there came a, a, a generation of scholars who were trained during a time when political history became kind of old fashioned and social history was the, the kind of cool thing to do. So they all started to do social history um, uh, which explored in many ways questions which that older generation was also interested in, uh, but that was not the focus of the public debate about totalitarianism, right? So there's that, that as well. Um, so there's a generational shift, there's a political shift. Um, often revisionists and social historians were politically more on the left, um, were plenty of Marxists among them, although that's not true for all of them, right? Um, 
so that's the, the, the kind of second big paradigm. Uh, and, and my sense is that that story from darkness to light was in many ways written by that, by a generation which tried to define itself in, in uh, contradistinction to what came before. Uh, and in the process, um, appropriating a lot of the, the insights and knowledge of the earlier literature, but forgetting where they got it from. Um, or saying, calling things uh, uh, like Merle Feinsot's Smolensk book, um, kind of a, an exception to the rule of, of totalitarian scholarship. Um, so then the so-called post-revisionist moment is basically a shift. Uh, again, there's a, a generational shift, uh, the younger generation of scholars, uh, but also a shift to um, cultural history in the paradigm of new cultural history, which became uh, fashionable since the 80s, 1980s, as a reaction to, uh, to um, social history uh, of the 60s and 70s. So that's the that's then very often seen as the third step. Um, again, they're they're um, elaborating very often aspects of so, for example, regime support, which is a big a big uh, um, uh, a big topic for post revisionists, uh, was something which uh, the revisionists some revisionists were also very interested in and were getting an enormous amount of political flack for because uh, because people thought they were um, apologizing for Stalin um, or were uh, claiming that Stalinism was somehow legitimate because it had popular support. So, I, and I'm kind of trying to tell a little bit the, the underlying story, which I think is also you learn from earlier literature and then you forget where you get it from. Uh, and uh, part of, you know, making a career in academia is about establishing your novelty. Um, and of course, novelty then always has to, uh, you have to kind of misrecognize the extent to which you are very much formed by the people who came before you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's that whole genre of uh, my research fills the gap <laughs> and the gap probably is not uh, always there. Um, but I think it's more than just a gap. If you really <laughs> want to make a career, you have to say you're paradigm shifting. Shifting right? it. <laughs> you're, you're, to you're totally doing everything new. That's right. And, and, and have completely new insights. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, and I'm very um, skeptical of that. Case. Yeah, of course, my, of course. My, yeah. uh, slightly sarcastic tone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, your work also... Um, focuses on this relationship between history and memory in post-socialist countries and indeed how this history of Stalinism is remembered um, today. This is a major area of study. Um, can you tell us a bit how, how you approach this, this topic in your book? Well, I have, I have two final chapters um, which deal really with the memory stuff more than the other. I mean, in many ways, all, all, all of history is memory, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, the... the um, the borders are very, very uh, unclear there. Um, but I deal with kind of two debates which are kind of contemporary and which are also moving the book a bit more into Eastern Europe than the rest of the book is. The rest of the book is much more centered on English language historiography, uh, 
with its influence of you know other other historiographies, but it, it's really focused on um, on English language historiography uh, rather than let's say Russian language or Ukrainian language historiography or German or Italian or French. Um, but there's two two final chapters. One is on uh, the history of the Second World War and how to properly write it and remember it in Russia, um, which is very much focused on the writings of Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin himself um, and his interventions uh, in uh, this very highly politicized uh, field, which of course now is entangled in um, uh, the largest uh, land war, largest, largest ground war since uh, World War II. Uh, the, the, the other chapter is uh, a history on the, the Great Famine in Ukraine, also known as the Holodomor now from a, a Ukrainian perspective. And the, that one is in particularly interested in the, the transnational aspect of the evolution of that historiography first in uh in the ukrainian diaspora and very much at the at the at the margins of of academia and very often outside of academia then eventually within uh english language academia and then coming back uh to uh to ukraine after independence and so in in both of them i'm very interested in the kind of interaction i guess of professional history with memory and how, you know, the two with public memory, I mean, um, and how the two are kind of very often in a conflictual and uneasy relationship um, with each other. Um, I was wondering if you might want to comment um, on some of that history of the Second World War uh, within the Russian context and the evolution of how it's has been treated since since the collapse of the Soviet Union. How it shifted, and um, what were what was the focus of that memory over the past thirty years? Yeah, well, one can maybe go even further back mm. into the Soviet period, right? So, so the the, the Second World War, in particular, uh, what the Soviets and now still the Russians and uh, many in Belarus call the Great Patriotic War, that is the war against Nazi Germany from forty one to forty five. That was the center of a Soviet war cult, which in many ways was uh, an embrace by the state of uh, of a way to deal with and instrumentalize the enormous trauma uh, which a lot of well everybody in the Soviet Union had experienced because of this war. Um, so it became kind of a way to acknowledge this this uh, this trauma, but also to use it for political mobilization uh, and kind of regime integration. And basically, you have an evolution from under Stalin. Uh, the story was uh, the Soviet Union under the leadership of the, uh, uh, the the Communist Party under the leadership of the wise comrade Stalin uh, crushed the fascist in an all uh, all people's heroic war. Everybody was in, there were no traitors and so on. Um, under Khrushchev then, under kind of de-Stalinization, Stalin is kind of, it's not removed, but he becomes a scapegoat for everything when, that went wrong. 1941, terrible you know, military catastrophe, 
uh, all Stalin's fault. Uh, the repressions during the war, all Stalin's fault and so on. So Stalin becomes, uh, the story becomes nearly, it's the Communist Party leading the Soviet people in the united struggle against the fascists, despite Comrade Stalin and all of his mistakes, right? Uh, then under Brezhnev, they reinsert Stalin carefully, saying, well, yeah, he made some mistakes, but he was also the competent manager of the of the war effort. And that's kind of what you get as we go into the 1980s. And then um, Gorbachev, under the policy of Glasnost, opens the, the, the floodgates for all kinds of criticism of the war record. So people start writing about uh, the the um, horrors of 1941, uh, the repression during the war, blocking battalions uh, who shoot at their own people, uh, the 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 part of the war which was always not remembered or remembered only in passing, namely the Hitler-Stalin Pact and the um, occupation of Poland uh, and the and the annexation of the Baltics. Um, uh, the massive deportations and all of that stuff. It comes all out uh, in, in the end. And, and it's nearly as if there's a, a counter myth to the war established where the war is just won because there's commissars with guns, you know, forcing people into battle and so on. Um, and then, but that was always a minority position because there was too much involved in family histories in this war and in a positive memory of this war. So that a backlash was probably always, uh, always likely, and under under uh, President Putin, that backlash was embraced by the state, um, partially because I think Putin himself is deeply, personally um, committed to the old war myth, um, uh, but also because they realized that was one of the things a lot of people could agree on. So that the the war became uh, became a rallying point around what was good about Russia's past. So it's now no longer the Soviet past; it's the Russian past. Um, and it went a little bit from saying yes, there were all these terrible things, but there were, we shouldn't just focus on the terrible things. Uh, all you know, all countries have terrible things in their past. Let's focus on the the positive things: victory over fascism. Uh, we saved world civilization from the Nazis, which you know essentially is true. Um, but and the other things we'll just you know acknowledge, but not really talk very much about. Two basically saying all of these negative things were actually good things. Uh, Hitler-Stalin Pact was a was a um, uh, was a, a strike of genius, a stroke of genius. Uh, um, the the repression was, insofar as it happened, was actually necessary. Um, 1941 was not a catastrophe, but a carefully planned uh, fighting retreat, and so on and so on and so on. So uh, it has become now, they embraced um, uh, basically a return to the Soviet narrative, only now as a Russian narrative, and increasingly, and now, I mean, now just, very radically, but before the war broke out already, um, the war in Ukraine broke out already, uh, an increasing um, first marginalization and then then actual victimization of 
historians uh, and others um, who were uh, continuing to promote a more nuanced and very often more dark history of, of World War II. And there, I mean, basically that, that, that debate is now shut down. And um, in the context of a war which is uh, legitimized as a, 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 a war against fascism, um, uh, basically, you know, mm. normal historical operations mm. are likely to be completely suspended. I mean, we're only two weeks in, but yeah, that's pretty much what's what's going on. Yeah. And um, it's interesting in your book, you, you sort of also note uh, the extent to which the figure of Stalin moves in and out of that history, it's sometimes being central, but sometimes kind of yeah, being on the margins. And, and that also tells a little bit about how that memory shifts uh, or has shifted in the past couple of decades. Um, Mark, I'm interested if you can tell us what is the future of Stalinism? And I mean, as a scholarly field. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, let's say five weeks ago, I would have <laughs> you a carefully um, <laughs> worded uh, prognosis. At the moment, I don't, I really don't know. It's, um, it depends very much what the outcome of this current war is. Um, if Russia wins or if Russia, well, not so much Russia, Putin, yeah, whoever, um, particularly if they manage to take Kiev, we will lose access to uh, one of the few uh, um, accessible KGB archives and very many other archives. I very much doubt that if the current uh, uh real dictatorial turn in Russia con should continue, um, that archival research will be possible in the future. I mean, it was possible until recently. I don't know what the situation now is, but you couldn't travel there now, obviously. Um, um, if not, I mean, if Ukraine remains independent, if there is maybe some change to the regime in, in, in Russia. Who knows? Um, but at the moment, it looks all pretty bleak. Um, there will be, I mean, we've already seen a new wave of, um, of uh, exile from the region, uh, both of people fleeing war in Ukraine and, and people fleeing the new dictatorship in, or the, the, the real dictatorship now in in Moscow or in, in Russia. So there might well be a whole new generation of, um, of scholars who want to figure out what the meaning of this history is. So there might be a reinvigoration of that. I don't know what sources could drive that, which we don't already have. So, so that's all. I, I'm afraid I, I'm I'm always reluctant to talk about the future, but I'm even more reluctant now because it 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 seems that the world has changed so dramatically in the last two weeks that it's very difficult to actually see towards you know the end of the month or so. Yeah, I I think uh, this decade has been yeah been very difficult to keep up with <laughs> so far. Um, I was I I just look wanted to. Um, Thank you for uh, spending this time with us, for uh, sharing your work on, on Stalinism. And uh, maybe you can tell us what you're working on at the moment. Um, well, I mean, the, the, 
the true answer really is uh, I'm working on understanding what's the what the situation of the war is. Um, that's what I spend most of my time uh, with uh, at the moment. But I, I technically do have two um, large grants I'm involved in. Um, one which will not be uh, impacted by uh, this war. Uh, it's it's called Aftermaths of War. It's a it's a fairly big team uh, funded by Australian Research Council grant, uh, and we're trying to um, write a history of the transition from war to peace and the very often you know uh, lack of transition or the lingering of the war uh, after the war. Um, from the Napoleonic Wars to World War II. Um, so that's in many ways uh, much of that. While there is some archival research built into that, but really this is kind of uh, kind of desktop research and, and, and uh, synthetic kind of thinking. Um, the other one uh, is more problematic. It's, it's called... Uh, uh, KGB Empire. Um, it's a, a comparative history of uh, the KGB apparatuses, practices, and archives in um, in Ukraine, in the three Baltic uh, states, and in um, in Germany. So the Stasi uh, that that began in 2020, technically. Of course, we couldn't travel for two years because of COVID. Now that we were just getting ready to travel to the field, this war broke out. So, uh, so clearly, I mean, our research in the um, in Ukraine has been knocked out uh, for the time being, at least. Um, if this war doesn't further escalate. I will go to the Baltics later this year to do some archival research, but who knows um, if that's not also frontline by then. Um, so that that one is more whether or not. I mean, there's lots of there's. I mean, one can still do stuff about this because there's been a lot of publications on KGB history. It's a whole genre of life writing of Czechisti, for example, it's very interesting. But it's not what we had set out to do. We is, by the way, it's a team of three here at the University of Melbourne. Uh, my colleague, Julie Fedor in the history department, um, Alison Lewis in uh, the German department and myself. So we shall see uh, what what will come out of this. Well, um, best of luck with that, with that work. Uh, and I hope you will be uh, back on our program with uh, your next book and next publication and hopefully in a bit of a better circumstances than... than um, the ones that we are seeing today. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eva, for having me.